You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. everyone and welcome to the guidepost uh i have a frequent guest with us captain tom roller tom how are you doing today buddy i'm doing great how are you good tom is in a uh shabby chic hotel room somewhere in southern nice hotel room. So, southern somewhere in southern new jersey awaiting various council meetings and he just has a real short window to kind of try to help everyone out with these striper comments uh and and the idea behind the podcast today is we have a crazy complex document tom is a council member for the state of north carolina for the south atlantic council and tom reads a lot of comments so we we kind of put our heads together at the guides association and said i bet you folks would like hearing from tom about what makes a good comment and and how to best affect change because tom you read an awful lot of comments don't you yes i read a lot and i hear a lot and i also want to add i sit on my state commission too and we are very heavy on public comments Um, we've had a lot of really relevant issues there where we've had a lot of involvement from the recreational fishing world and um I've heard a lot of good comments. I've a lot of heard a bad. I've heard a lot of bad ones, right? And I, I'm hoping I can use my. I don't know if I would call it expertise, but my recent experience to help folks provide a good a good comment, either written or in person. Yeah, I, I mean, particularly with this striped bass document, it's so incredibly complex. Um, people are having a really hard time. I think relaying their thoughts and and what they want from the fishery so we're going to try to break this down as quick as possible and and uh from a council member's perspective you know what what makes a difference and and tom's the ideal guy because tom and i have had countless conversations and i i can tell you that I, I can't speak for every council or commission member, but I can speak for Tom. He spends an insane amount of time reading comments from that state commission as well as from the council. Tom, I can remember one time talking to you and you were like, I think you said you had almost a thousand comments to read, right? It was crazy. I think oh, it was yes. about flounder. Oh, several times. Yeah, several times. Yeah, absolutely. To Tom's credit, he sits there and reads reads each one. So I think we're going to go with the easiest thing first, Tom. Um, Before we started the podcast, you mentioned that sometimes folks will send in kind of their story. You know, what maybe they've seen a decline in the fishery. Maybe maybe they have, uh, you know, just experienced change and they're relaying that to you. But they never come out and say what they want. So what, what, I mean, that just leaves everything up for interpretation, right? That's got to be like so frustrating for, for you to be like, well, I, I don't, I'm not even sure what this person wants. 
so whether it's striped bass or um, on the council level, let's say dolphin or at the state or North Carolina issue, estuarine striped bass or southern flounder, we've had a lot of recent comments. And these are the ones that that I look back to, right? And there was a recent meeting where we probably had 30 in-person commenters, right? And this also goes for written comment, but I'm just going to use this one as an example. And we had people from various elements of the recreational world, fishing guides, tackle shop owners, people that uh, belong to fishing clubs, come and give public comment. I'd say half the people came in great, great stories. They talked about the connect, their personal connection history with the fishery. They talked about um, their business, whether they'd like to say they're a fishing guide or tackle shop, and how the decline of the fishery or changes in the fisheries impacted their business. But easily half of these commenters didn't say anything in regards to the document. They say things are bad. I want things to be better. I want things to be different. Maybe they kind of alluded a couple things. So when I hear or read a good public comment, first of all, I challenge everybody, you know, don't, you don't need to send in an essay that's five pages. You know, be concise. You can tell your story in a couple paragraphs or a paragraph. That is important. But you can never forget to specifically reference what you want the commission or council to do. And that means that doesn't, I mean, and that may be as simple as, hey, um, um, page one, option 2A is what I, I, um, I support. That's okay to say that. Um, because I think when you talk about your personal story, you're kind of getting away from that, that form letter aspect. But if you don't say what you want the commission or council to do, when it's a contentious issue, the first thing that people are going to do is like, oh, I, I, I only heard we had 30 people here, but I only heard five people say that they don't want to have a, a, a conservation, you know, get rid of conservation equivalency when the stock is overfished, you know, it's it a reference specifically striped bass. So it's very important that you also stay on target. Right. Um, and that's where, you know, we always challenge people in the advocacy world, right, to say, hey, you know, here may be some good bullet points from the Guides Association. Put it in your own words and talk to you about why these positions are different, right? Is that is that a good start, Tony? No, I think that's a really good start, Tom. And and to build on that, one of the most frustrating things for me is when we get a hold of a comment that asks for something that isn't in the document. So for striped bass in particular, the two things that we hear a lot are you know, something equivalent to banned commercial fishing. That's not in the document. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting into any positions on it. Um, it's, it's not in the document. And then the other thing is we need, if there were more forage fish, there were more menhaden, there wouldn't be a problem with striped bass. Also not in the document. And I can tell you, uh, there are plenty of people in the guides association who have been men Hayden advocates since 2010, when we started working on really the first management plan for men Hayden and a bay cap and, and all these other things for the reduction fishery. And we, we finally got ERPs through where they manage men Hayden for the significance, um, for their significance to the ecosystem and I am a real believer, being a resident of the Chesapeake Bay, that there there is localized depletion because that, you know, those fish have been just pounded for decades. 
And, and you can't take that many fish out without, you know, depleting the stock to some level. But we just heard, you know, recently, a couple of months ago that, you know, we're looking at 10 years before any science can come out to confirm localized depletion. That's pretty disappointing because guess what? I'll be 60. And, and, you know, like the time moves on and the problem isn't addressed, but here's the kicker. You know, there's a lot of folks saying out there that there would be X amount more striped bass if there were more Menhaden. And I, I appreciate the sentiment, you know, as a Menhaden advocate for a long time, I, I really appreciate that sentiment and thank you for getting involved. But you knew there was a butt coming, right? It's not in the document. It is not in Amendment 7. You're doing no good. Where were you for the last 10 years when we were sometimes the only people in the room at the commission meeting for Menhaden? You know, you kind of missed the boat. And there's a lot of stuff coming up and, and that you can participate on, but it'll be for Menhaden management not for striped bass management. And here's the kicker, Tom. And I don't think this is what this is what Menhaden advocates kind of see the other side of the coin. So we have we got the ERPs put in, right? So it's got four species: bluefish, weakfish, dogfish and and striped bass. How many how many Menhaden do those four species need and then what's left over to be harvested? Okay? So what happens when one of those four predatory species declines? Anyone thought of that? I have. You need less menhaden in the water then, Tom. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yeah. you better be laser focused on restoring the population of striped bass. Because if we don't do that, there doesn't need to be as many menhaden in the water because of the way they're being managed now. Have you ever heard of the term hoisted by your own petard? Look it up, listeners, because if you keep saying the wrong thing, they're going to be able to increase menhaden harvest because there are there any goddamn striped bass. And bluefish are overfished. And what is a weak fish? And yeah, there's a shit ton of spiny dogfish. So what do you think about that, so Tom? So, so Tony, but that that, that you're 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 very on point there because very important issues. But remember, when we're discussing these decision documents at the the right, you know, the decision maker level, commissioner council, we're laser focused on what's in front of us and what we can or can't do. Because even if we disagree with certain aspects of how we're doing, in the you know, a lot of fishermen, but fishing guides will come to me and they say, "Wow, I don't I don't agree with." You know, I, I look at the, the stock assessment and I think there's more young fish out there, or I think that this is wrong. And I'm like, and then they'll come and they'll make that comment. I was like, you just wasted your time to a degree, right? Because you, your observations are important, but there's still the whole regulatory apparatus that we have to work through, right? So you have to stay on point. And on these contentious issues like striped bass and other fish, there's a large contingent of people who want nothing more than to do nothing. And it's when those folks come and they say, oh, it's water quality, right? No, water quality is extremely important. 
where they say, oh, it's all these strength, you know, there's there's not enough menhaden in the back. Again, very important. They use that as a distraction point to maybe not address the issues at hand. So like Tony said, one of the most important things is is to stay laser focused on the issue at hand and not allow yourself to be distracted in your public comment. Um, because I think that just leaves big, big openings for people to ignore your comment or to try to go down these paths of distraction, which I like to call it, right? To 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 prevent us from making good decisions at at, at times. And that's something that's plagued our fisheries for for a really, really long time. Tom, we talked about this when you were driving up for the council meeting the other day. And if anyone thinks that the water quality in the Chesapeake Bay is worse than it was in the 70s and 80s, I have a bridge to sell you. It's not. Now, under the current administration in Maryland, they've slashed Maryland Department of the Environment's budget in half. There are not as many inspections going on. There are sewage spills in Baltimore Harbor. There is all sorts of stuff going on. We are not meeting our clean water goals. Um, you know, and, and hopefully that's going to change soon, but I mean, these are resilient fish and people need to wrap their head around the fact that we have killed too many of them. We have had the fourth and the eighth best year class ever recorded in the last 11 years. So riddle me this, if it's water quality. And if it's climate change, and if it's God just wanting to smite us, why have we had the fourth and eighth best year classes? And the reason why we're not benefiting from them, Tom, is another huge issue that we should talk about. And it's our little friend conservation equivalency. And this, when we spoke to almost every state, not every commissioner, but every state, well, at least one person in each state or jurisdiction. We heard a we heard a drumbeat that conserva- of the four things on this, conservation equivalency was considered the most important. And those 2011 and the 2015 year class did not recruit, well, the 2015s haven't recruited yet, that the 2011s did not recruit in the numbers that they should have because of conservation equivalency. Tom, red drum are an enormously important part of your business. Uh, I think, you know, in North Carolina, that that's people, when people think of inshore fishing in North Carolina, the first thing that comes to mind is red drum. And we were talking before this, and you had said you had, you had had some pretty strong views on conservation equivalency. So I'm not telling people to just comment on one thing. We have all of our stuff on the Stripe Bass Alert page on our website, podcasts, blogs, infographics. Like it, we're, we're doing the, everything that we can to make this as easy as possible. And this document is absurdly complicated. And yes, we're mad about that, too. But it it doesn't change the fact that we have to comment on this thing 10 days from when we're taping this podcast, okay? What do you think about the use of conservation equivalency? 
while I think it's a great way to get around good conservation-based management, right? It's a great way to adapt your management to harvest more fish when you don't necessarily want to harvest more, right? There's a big discussion on Red Drum, right? Talking about how we can raise the bag limit. And there's a lot of people that don't support that, right? But it's all about trying to find a way to increase it through slight changes of the size limit, you know, and, and, I, and I know it's a little bit different in the different species, but it's something that's very special to the ASMFC. And my big argument about that is, well, the ASMFC doesn't, isn't really a success story. And by isn't really a success story, I mean everything they manage is in that sewer tank. Tom, so, let me ask you a um, question. Have you, do y'all, in North Carolina, do y'all have people that want to harvest the big red drum? Of course. I mean, you hear about it. I don't think it's that that well supported, but there's a loud, there's a small group of loud people that would like to harvest them. I'm not one of those people. So it's in the in the Bay, you know, we're getting more and more big red drum for like two months out of the year in July and August. And these folks are like, well, yeah, you should just let us keep one. You know, uh, because our, our, our clients want to bring home meat. And I'm like, have you ever seen the fillet of a of a big red drum? First of all, you need a chainsaw and a spade shovel to scale and fillet the thing. Second of all, you get tons of protein from the worms. Not exactly delicious meat. You know, they grow so fast to 27 inches that 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 is a great you know that whatever whatever the slot is in North Carolina that's a great size to harvest that fish if you want to take it home but they get pretty nasty when they get old and i tell this story all the time you know Tampa Bay they they tagged a red drum at like 27 inches and you can you can google it just google Tampa Bay red drum uh tag return it was almost 40 years and the this was before computers when it was tagged and they actually found the retired biologist in Florida who had kept records. And, and it was like 38 years and the fish had grown 11 inches. It was recaptured at 38 inches. These fish are fucking ancient. And I mean, can you imagine the toxicity in something that's almost, you know, over 40 years old and been swimming around and eating everything, that thing's probably got more mercury than a the 1970s thermometer. Like, I mean, it's just, it's not, and like, how long, if you kill that fish, it'll your grandchild will be fishing when that fish is replaced in the system. It's just, it's, and that's what terrifies me about conservation equivalency in the commission. <laughs> Because they could try to pull that shit. And let me tell you, with striped bass on the decline, these pinheads don't look any further than tomorrow. You know, I can book two more trips a year if I can kill a big red drum. There aren't going to be any big red drum, dumbass, if you start killing them. And that's a perfect example of an abuse of conservation equivalency. And here's another abuse of conservation equivalency. And, um, you know, and I know we've done this for striped bass, but red drum, if you, according to the commission science, if you change the size limit by a couple of inches, you can double the bag limit, which is just a great way to strip mine a year class by increasing harvest 
right? And that's another thing. It's not just the killing of these big old fish. And quite frankly, when we look at the management of red drum on the East Coast, it's one of the few success stories. So the fact that there's a lot of people, you know, wanting to change that is really scary to me. But, you know, I'd like to go back, um, Tony, and kind of talk a little bit about how we can wrap this all up. And our members and listeners can provide a really solid um, um, comment to not just for striped bass, but for other issues too. Do, do you want to? Um, do you want me to kind of go into kind of what I like to see yeah, in, in a public and, comment? And folks, there, you know, this is for stripers, and you know, Tom's going to paint a broad picture. But just to kind of finish on conservation equivalency, there's there's four different things on conservation equivalency that you can comment on. None of them could be passed. Four of them could be passed. Two of them could be passed. It's like a la carte. We don't have any delusions that all four of these things are going to be passed. And some of them are really complicated, like, you know, conservation buffers, if you you choose to use conservation equivalency. Um, you know, what, what's the P percent standard error that you can use on conservation equivalency? One of them is really easy and it's just kind of like a no brainer. And it seems like that's the one that has the legs. And that is you can't use conservation equivalency if the stock is overfished. And that means that the, the, the biomass is below the threshold and striped bass are badly overfished right now. So it would it would put the pump the brakes on any use of conservation equivalency until the stock is above the threshold, not the target, just the threshold. And it's, you know, sometimes what is it, Occam's razor? You know, the simplest the the answer to your question is the simplest solution. And this this seems like because it doesn't ban CE forever. It just really puts a hyper focus on getting that stock above the threshold, which I think is what we all want. And we can deal with other aspects of CE, you know, a couple of years from now when we see the stock rebound. So if if y'all are stretched for time, if this document just frustrates you, that would be a great thing to comment on is, you know, uh, suspend the use of conservation equivalency while a stock is below the threshold or overfished. So now let's get let's get into kind of like a broader scope, Tom, like like you said about what what people, you know, when they're thinking about making these comments, what makes a good comment from your perspective? So you first of all, you raised a good point there is, you know, um, when we look at fisheries documents, right? They're all really confusing. And let's be frank, if you don't understand it, that's okay. I I mean, I feel like, you know, when you take a scientist who studies this species over here, and you take a look at this one, they're not going to fully understand either, right? They're very, very specific. And and so that's okay. So I always challenge people say, look, if you're having trouble understanding it, you know, this fishery is really important to you. So you're a member of the Guides Association. You believe with our views that we're putting forth. We're here to try to help you understand that stuff. So start with that, right? That'll help you kind of whittle down to what you, we what we think are the most important things, right? Now, also, if you read something in the document and you're like, hey, I think this is really important too for X, for this reason, go ahead and put that in there as well. But there's, there's several aspects of, of wrapping this all up in a public comment. 
right? Um, that I think that, that really resonates with me when I read these. First of all, don't be too long, right? I mean, we get some really good public comments that are long. That's great too. But also don't be too short. Don't send in a couple sentences. So when it comes to providing a written comment or an in-person comment, they're very, very similar. First of all, um, I see a lot of people who kind of like use a form letter aspect, even though they have their own good story. That's never going to resonate with people as much. So always connect yourself to the fishery. Explain why it's important to you or your business, right? Explain why you want to see things change. Then let's move into the second point. Let's start picking things that you want the commission to do. Remember, stay laser focused on the documents. It's very important. Like, for example, we'll use here is... One of our most important issues is conservation equivalency and make sure and recommend that it not be used on a stock that's overfished or below the threshold if we want to get even more technical. Um, and the third thing, you know, Tony mentioned was always tr try to prevent commenting on other stuff. We get some, you know, you, you just kind of random comments. It's, it's okay to, you know, mention something and particularly if it's relevant to the commission, but don't make it a figure point of your comment. Maybe, you know, if, you, if there's something that's important to you while you have the time, say, hey, by the way, also this, but very brief, right? Because I think that just kind of confuses that. Um, the first thing is, is, you know, a lot of times now we're doing a lot of online comment. So, you know, first of all, if you do the online form, make sure you have something written out pretty well. It doesn't have to be long, just a couple paragraphs and send it in. Um, another thing that I think is very important is to make sure that, you know, if you let's say you live in North Carolina and you're commenting to the South Atlantic Council, email your comment to your to your council members from the state. Say, hey, I'm Joe and I'm a fisherman or I'm Billy and I'm a fishing guide. Email it to them. Say, I just want to make sure you saw this. I read them all, man. Not just on the form, but in the email. But particularly when I get somebody from my state and they send me something, I'm, I'm going to pay really good attention to it, right? So I think that's a good thing. Um, also, let's say we have online listening sessions where you can log on and, and, and talk in person. That's also a great thing. Um, you'll hear a lot of commissioners and stuff listening to those. That's a great thing. It also shows you spend the amount of time. Um, and the third one, and I know this is a little bit different than COVID era. We're getting back to um, going back to in-person stuff. But if you get the option to comment in person, like let's say a meeting is not too far of a drive. You know, I've driven hours for meetings, you know, on my own. Um, but if you get an option to comment in person, that's also really important. And I also recommend people when you go to an in-person meeting, um, and you read your comment, stay for the day or part of the day, particularly stay for the, the relevant part of the discussion. Let's say you've got a million things on the docket at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Try to be there for Stripe Pass and listen to it and sit there in the audience and stare at your, stare at your representatives that they know you're there. Because when you make that time and effort to go and be there and stay there, I'm telling you, man, it resonates. And that's really important to me when people do that. And it means a lot to me as a decision maker when I see people make the time and the effort to do that. And when there's breaks, go introduce yourself. Talk to people that represent you. Talk to your state. Talk to other people. You're going to learn a lot. And um, I always make myself available. And I think a lot of other people do at the commission and council levels. It's a very important. So. To get back, you know, to drill back down to striped bass, okay. Um, I think another really important facet of this is the catch and release mortality. Um, you know, Tom, we have been managing fisheries for almost a hundred years, 
a certain way and demonizing catch and release mortality. You know, the people who are doing it would not be doing it if the stock wasn't in the dumpster. And they're also the exact same people that exploited conservation equivalency and other bad forms of flexibility with striped bass management to get us right where we are today. And they can't take away anything else but catch and release mortality. So when I look at that document and I look at that recreational catch and release mortality, there's a lot that's missing there. A lot. And the Guides Association wants, I think we just supported C and D, which is if you, you know, if you're like flounder fishing and you catch a striper, a keeper striper on a J hook, you have to throw it back because it wasn't caught on a circle hook. And you can't use a gaff, which I look, I get it. I, I some transoms are bigger on boats, you know, big charter boat, party boat, hard to hard to get that striper in. But with the slot limit, you cannot judge if it's a 26 or a 28 inch striper with 100% accuracy, nor can you judge if it's, you know, a 37 inch or, you know, depending upon what state um, inch striper, and you don't need to be poking holes in these fish to find out. So um, the one thing that we didn't support was the no harvest, no targeting stuff in the spawning areas, or the two week closures. And this is why most of the spawning areas are already closed. If you look at a map of the Chesapeake Bay, it looks like, I don't even know what, a kid's coloring book. You cannot fish in a spawning river, even catch and release in the Chesapeake Bay until June 1. I am surrounded by these rivers. We are not allowed to fish in them. And, and the penalties are stiff. Uh, angler I know swears that they were jigging for white perch um and there was i guess some questions with the nrp officers and they lost their ability to fish in maryland for six months they had their license revoked for six months and to this day that person swears that they were just fishing for white perch so tom you had a comment on that yeah so i mean we manage we have a lot of states. I mean, striped bass are found from central Florida all the way up into Canada. And, you know, we've got a lot of river systems with spawning populations. Obviously, the Chesapeake Bay produces the vast amount of them. And a lot of states manage these fisheries differently. Some states close their spawning areas, right? Other areas don't. North Carolina is one of them. But I would point out, and this has been a, a, a point, on a, something that's been made on the state level a lot, is when you look at a, a female spawning striped bass, it doesn't matter if you kill her when she's spawning or a month before they're spawning because they're still dead, right? So, um, and we could talk about the whole non-targeting issue, I mean, at length, right? Um, and we could bring a bunch of different opinions of it, but I think the Guide Association has been very pointed on why this issue, on, on their position on this issue. Well, people, people know what they see. And I can tell you, 
you know, if somebody from, I don't know, you know, maybe this, maybe something like no targeting striped bass resonates with somebody in the Northeast. But I can tell you that every little kid who's on Meemaw and Peepaw's pier in the summer in the Chesapeake Bay that's fishing for spot or white perch with a size four Aberdeen hook and a piece of blood worm on a top bottom rig, three out of the 10 fish that they catch are 12 inch stripers that probably swallowed the damn hook. Cause little stripers inhale stuff. That's kind of how they feed more than a big striper. And especially if it's delicious little piece of a blood worm or a grass shrimp. Um, so, you know, it's completely and utterly unenforceable. And to that point, the technical committee cannot even tell us how many fish we would save. And I think, yes, you will lose a certain percentage of fishermen with no targeting, you know, or, or I'm sorry, no harvest because they want to harvest fish. But this is a 90% release fishery. People just want to catch them. That's what a striped bass is. Um, you know, we always say a disclaimer that it's fine to bring one home, but you know, numbers are brutal and they don't care about feelings. And we release 90% of our fish. And that's why the catch and release mortality numbers are so high. And the last thing that I will say on this is our friends at Mass DMF are doing comprehensive work on post-release mortality on striped bass. Science will probably be ready in a year, year and a half. I don't know. We haven't talked to them in a couple of months. Why the hell are we doing this now? So look at it from a different lens. If this was about something different, I don't know, spawning success of stripers in the Chesapeake Bay would, and it's, and the science is going to be delivered in a year. Why would we be taking management action on spawning success of stripers in the Chesapeake Bay today? Wouldn't anyone with a grain of sense say, hey, we're going to have the best science available in the history of managing these species in a year. Why don't we get that science, that peer-reviewed accepted science, sit down, go through it, and let's make some decisions. What if, Tom, what if we found out that the number one cause of catch and release mortality was bait fishing and circle hooks didn't work as good as we think they did for stripers? They work great for billfish. But what if they weren't effective on stripers because stripers feed differently? And we knew that, a, you know, 70, 80% of all of that catch and release mortality was due to stripers inhaling bait. W well, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a good management approach? But nobody's talking about that. They just want to say, you can't fish. We can't enforce it. We can't quantify it. But you're not allowed to fish. That's some bullshit. I mean, that is that is in in, in a, seeing a lot of bullshit in my life in fisheries policy. That that may take the cake. I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. It's just it's completely and utterly disingenuous. It's not really looking to save the fish in any way. It's punitive, like a little bully on a playground that pushes another kid down because his toy is nicer. You know, oh, we can't harvest. Well, you can't do it either. Ugh. That's what it is.
So it's, I think it's really important so, that we comment on that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it is punitive. And we have seen this discussion in a lot of fisheries lately. Now, like you said, if there's good science to support, hey, this here is a problem. We all should aspire to manage that, to, 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 to address that with management, right? But we don't have that here. Now, you mentioned the gas issue earlier. That's one of those things that you look at and you say, okay, you know, maybe we can't quantify it, but this is something we should talk about because um, we should all aspire to reduce our discards in, as much as possible and take care of the fishery. But I'm not hearing this from people who want to conserve this fishery and manage it differently. I'm hearing it from people, well, quite frankly, who don't want to manage it better. It's like an impunitive action against the recreational community based really off of nothing um, or no hard science, let's say. Because when we, um, when we look at recreational fishing, I, I mean, let's remember here. I mean, it's, it's a blood sport. Even if we take care of the fish the best we can, some will die. But that puts an economic value on them. And when it's all said and done, a dead fish is a dead fish. What is its value to our economy? And not just what is the value to our economy, but you know, how can we best take care of the fishery? This comes down to the question of what we want this fishery to look like, right? And I think we all want to manage it with abundance, but we also have to make sure that we're just not throwing stuff against the wall, like you know, being punitive against uh, uh, recreational mortality, not based off of clear science, right? So, Tom, we, uh, you know, we have a we have a tragically brutal fishery in the Chesapeake Bay and it occurs north of the Bay Bridge and the fish get squeezed so you're talking about all the fish that their natal rivers are up around the Susquehanna where a huge amount of spawning occurs and these fish kind of swim around north of the Bay Bridge until they're mature enough to leave and because of bad water quality, they get squeezed. There's a very limited space where they can actually function. You know, low, low dissolved oxygen in the water, stratification between freshwater and saltwater. And you can go and find these fish squeezed in two or three feet of the water column. And as soon as they find that school, they dial in and they annihilate them. And the catch and release mortality up there is shocking. It is not 9%. Um, and there's, it's a chum fishery. And the fish actually just get trained. When they hear a boat engine or an anchor hit, they know that food's coming in the water. And by the time, you know, you hit like the middle of August and that temperature's like probably in the mid 80s, you know, it's disgusting and heartbreaking to see what goes on up there. And not a lot of people I know fish that area. And I have I have spoken to representatives from Maryland and other jurisdictions and suggested a full closure of that area. And I bring this up because, you know, some people would probably, you know, become negative on what I said about no targeting, no, no targeting, no harvest closures. If we're going to do it, do it where it makes an impact. And I would fully support a no targeting closure north of the Bay Bridge during July and August and the first week of September before our temperatures start going down. It's absurd. 
that that fishery even exists with the science that we know we have and we know now. And it's selfish. And it's, I mean, it's a sin to see what goes on up there. It is a sin. And these are, these are the last, the last Buffalo, right? This is it. These are, if <laughs> this is, they, they massacred the 2011s up there and the 2015s, I'm sure are going to have the same fate. So I just want to be real clear on that, that it's, it's not that a broad two week closure for Maine and Massachusetts isn't going to do anything. It's just going to focus effort on either side of that closure and it's going to hurt the economy. And that's all it's going to do. But if you actually really wanted to do something that would increase the numbers of fish and how many survive, shut that Bay Bridge fishery down north of the Bay Bridge for 60, 80 days. Um, and that would make an enormous difference, an enormous difference in the productivity of the Chesapeake Bay. So that I think that's another really important thing to comment on. And, you know, Tom, this is probably running a little bit longer than we wanted. So just as a council member, you know, off the top of your head, uh, do you have any kind of parting thoughts? So we want if if people are beaten down, they don't even think that they should comment on this. They feel like their voice doesn't make a difference. We're saying just God comment on catch and release mortality stuff. Comment on. Uh, conservation equivalency, you know, what are, what are your final thoughts on, on a good comment, uh, thoughtful council members can have, in this case, commission members, but from your experience, you know, let's, let's pump these folks up. So they, they open up their email after this and send something in. So the first thing is, and I've been really hard on some of the fishing guides in my area recently for not being involved, even though the fact that they care a lot, right? And they understand that they're fisheries in, in my area of North Carolina. People will say, well, it doesn't matter. Well, they don't listen to us anyway. Well, they sure can't listen to you when you don't provide a comment. They sure can't listen to you when you don't go to a meeting. You've got to be involved. Whether you are a guide, a tackle shop owner, an ASGA member, just a, a passionate recreational fisherman, a bait fisherman, or a fly fisherman, if you're not there commenting, other people will. And then they can really ignore you when you're not involved. It does not take that long to provide a good, thoughtful comment. It does not take that long to read stuff put out by the Guides Association and other conservation groups, put together a good thought, and send it in. And it makes a difference, right? And so the parting thought I have, is, first of all, is you have to be involved in the conservation. Well, our discussion on the targeting and catch and release mortality is a good point. Because if you're not there to make a comment, there are people who don't want to manage this fishery well. They're not, there are people who, who only want to look to the next, their charters the next month or their um, harvest, you know, this summer, as opposed to what they want this fishery to look like 10 years from now. And if we don't sit there and comment on these things, knowing that, you know, looking at, you know, recreational mortality, that there, that there are, are issues that we can address and that we could, we, we could address with science in the future. If you don't comment on these things, we're going to have arbitrary stuff put on us because there's a lot of people out there who just don't really want to do, who don't want to make hard decisions. And the more people you hear from and the more people who provide good comments, it makes it harder for us to ignore. And there's a lot of us out here. 
So that's what I leave it. And, and you know, and, and then one other note is always be polite, right? You know, it's, it's great when these meetings, it's really easy to get fired up, but nothing's, nothing's greater than somebody who's really passionate, but also polite and calm at the same time. Yeah. And I'll tell you for all the new advocates out there, come in and be humble. You know, I think that's part of being polite, but just because you've been fishing for stripers for 20 years or so, if you're just starting to participate in the management now, you got a lot to learn. And and dealing with fisheries management is a lot deal, different than going fishing. And if you're if you're humble and it and and your message is heartfelt, they're going to listen to you. And if you come in with an attitude that oh, I know I oh, I know so much. I I, I fish so much in this one little area. And and these guys can't catch. These guys don't know anything. And I'm a, I'm gonna tell them how it is. Well, let me guess. Let me let me let me let me give you a piece of advice. The Gettysburg Address doesn't happen on this stuff. All right, you're not Abraham Lincoln. Deal with it. If you come in with that kind of attitude, you will eyes will roll. You will be completely discounted, and you make all the other advocates look bad come in humble and come in with with the right attitude that you want to save stripers because guess what you don't know more than these people you don't a lot of them have been doing this a very long time educate yourself on these issues and you know i think the goal here is saving stripe ass and yes we're passionate about it but do it in a way, you know, the goal here isn't to make people look stupid or to criticize people. The goal here is for our kids and grandkids to catch stripers and a lot of them. So think about the goal that you have in mind before you put your comments in and it'll make a huge difference.